Good morning. The scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salom, Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatiel, and Sheatiel the father of Jerubabel, and Zerubabel, and Zerubabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, and the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Cynthia. Great job. That was great. But many of you were relieved that they didn't ask me to do that, right? Will you join me in prayer? Father, we've just heard a a remarkable history of names that link us to the past and lead us to Christ. We pray that in the next few moments you'd do that. Father, I don't know what kind of meal that I've prepared for these people. don't know if it's actually a meal. Uh, But I pray you'd make it into a meal and uh, that you would help us to feast upon the good news of Jesus Christ who can change our lives. And so we pray to that end that you will be with us and we will know that you are with us and when we know that you are with us, we will say thank you by changed lives, by obedience, by faith that's working through love. In Christ's name we pray, amen. 
Okay, uh, we continue in our series uh, on the theme of descending. Uh, Christ descended from glory to earth. He became embodied. The Bible tells us this happened. This is really, really true. This unique being, the God-man, uh, walked among us. And we are looking at the theme today of his descending to, in order to defend so we are going to have a message, a message based on Matthew's genealogy, but one person in particular uh, to this genealogy, and uh, her name is Tamar. But genealogies are quite uh, interesting. I think you'll find this one to be unique in that Matthew was giving us a few clues. I think you, you picked up on a few of those, uh, that it was a history framed around 14 generations uh, and different generations were being lumped together, and uh, they were being put together uh, up to the time of David, and then from David to another period called the the uh, the exile or the deportation to to Babylon, and then from the from that deportation to the time of Christ. So there's three epical movements in this genealogy. And it's quite remarkable that Matthew has put this together really, and my first point very, very simple. Um, the first point I want you to look at is simply that the, in, the great and grand introduction to Jesus Christ, the massive introduction to Jesus Christ, is the Old Testament. The Old Testament functions as a prelude to the coming of Jesus. So all these people represent remarkable stories, historical movements. And what Matthew's saying here is that the whole of your Old Testament is an introduction to Jesus Christ. That's when you look at your Bible and you hold it up, and I've, you've got your Bible, if you have your Bible with you, you see Matthew's Gospel, then strangely you see this blank page, I'm not sure what that's all about, uh, but then you have this whole section in your Bible, rather thick, this whole section, Matthew is saying to us, it is an introduction to the hero of the Bible, who is Jesus Christ. So uh, genealogies function in many, many ways, they connect us to a particular group, um, and they legitimize certain people. I belong to this group. That I have a right to this privilege because this is my last name or my name. And so genealogies really establish community, continuity with the past. And um, in fact, in the Bible, there's about some 31 genealogies in Matthew. That's just in the Old Testament, 31 genealogies. So in the Bible, genealogies play a very important role. And I know that you have, I'm sure you may have tried to read through your Bible. And it's just one of these kinds of sections where you sort of... Uh, fall into a little moment of despair, like, what is the point of this? And, uh, and, and I, I, I connect with you, uh, what is the point? Well, uh, hopefully we can see some great light in this, in that it is a grand introduction to Jesus Christ. And, uh, and what's so beautiful about this introduction, uh, this list of names, is that Matthew includes the names of four women. And those are Tamar in verse 3, uh, Rahab and Ruth in verse 5, and the wife of Uriah, uh, otherwise known uh, as Bathsheba, in verse 6. And it is a beautiful thing that these women have been remembered, and they have remarkable stories. And Matthew has them in his gospel for a particular reason. 
Uh, this is not just news for men, it's news for women. And these women uh, are contributors to the great story of the Bible. Christ was related to these women, and unashamedly so. Uh, this is quite a list of characters, getting beyond these ladies. Uh, the men represented here are sinners. Uh, some of them are liars. Some of them are deceivers. Some of them are swindlers. Uh, some of them are people that you wouldn't really brag about or frame and have above your kitchen somewhere. That these are people that you might not want to avoid. Maybe you'd go get your name legally changed so you're no longer associated with them. But Jesus associates with them, and particularly the name of Tamar. Now, quickly here, I want to give you some background, because the theme today is Jesus descended to defend. And Tamar is a story that is recorded for us in Genesis 38. Now, uh, I I need to give you an excursion into this so it makes sense. Uh, So whatever your background is, whatever your understanding of the Bible, I hope this will help you grasp the beautiful story behind this woman, Tamar. If I would have counseled Tamar, I would have said to her, don't marry into into the family of Judah. Uh, Let me say this very respectfully, that Judah uh, was a loser. Um... And Judah's name in Bible history is quite famous. It's sort of a royal title. Jesus comes out of the out of the family of, of the tribe of Judah, and uh, so he's exal- his his tribe is exalted. But this passage does not exalt Judah until the very end of it. And I would have said Tamar, look, uh, there's lots of other families you could marry into. Just avoid Judah. And she marries a, a man named Ur. E R. Really, truly, truly, there was a man in the Bible named Ur. And uh, he's recorded there, and he dies. And Tamar is stuck as a widow. We're told, in fact, in verse 7 of chapter 38, what God thinks of the sons of Judah. He thinks of them, and he says that they are evil. Uh, he right out front, we, we know right up front what God thinks of them, and we actually find out that the reason why they die is because God makes sure that they die. So... Uh, they are punished uh, for wickedness, and uh, sometimes that's disturbing for us, but in a weekend like the one we have, we would love to see uh, wickedness uh, vanquished from this earth. And so Judah, Judah is actually one who disregards what God has said by way of who he should marry. Uh, this is sort of that patriarchal time. These are the sons of Jacob. These are sort of famous people in the Bible, uh, like Joseph, right? All those sons of Jacob. And um, Judah is supposed to marry someone that God, within, the, within that family. And Judah disregards that, and he himself marries a Canaanite woman. So from the get-go, God is going to, going to have Judah experience uh, some correction and discipline and punishment for that, and Judah knows what's up when his son, his son Ur, dies. Well, he knows that that God has that God has a displeasure toward him and his 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 um, his name, and because God, Judah has not regarded the name of God, so widows and children in that day were cared for by a brother of the deceased marrying the woman who is now a widow. That's how, that's how it worked. And so 
Uh, this is actually recorded for us uh, later in the book of Deuteronomy, that this is how you take care of people who, who have p- potentially been left destitute. So she marries Onan, O-N-A-N. There's really a guy in the Bible named Onan, and she marries Onan. And here's a, a continuing problem with the sons of Judah. They die. Onan died. So, once again, Tamar is left without a husband. Now, what she's really trying to do, she's trying to honor the memory of her first husband, Ur, by, through a brother, would have children, and his, Ur's, family line would continue through these other children. And so she is trying to honor a, a dead man. She's trying to honor someone who's no longer around. This is quite remarkable. And so um, now uh, Judah is thinking, wait a minute. Every time I give this woman one of my sons, uh, they don't live very long. So he's thinking, well, uh, I'm, just, I don't, I'm not going to do this anymore, even though he has one more son who seems like he's about a teenager, uh, and his name is Shelah. And so... What Judah does is he promises to Tamar, Shelah, when he is when he is old enough, Shelah can and will Judah promises marry Tamar. So she goes off to her father's house and sort of waits and waits and waits and waits for Shelah, and uh, and uh, she realizes that it's not going to happen. So uh, we have a woman in serious need. Uh, she is trying to do the right thing. She has vowed to care for the name of a f- husband who has passed away, and Judah is failing to keep a promise to her. So now we're all about to get outraged by this story, and uh, Judah is going to uh, do something that's is going to really uh, shock or dishearten us. And uh, ladies here, you may have a few choice words for Judah. Uh, But Judah is put into Genesis 38 for a particular reason. He is being contrasted with Joseph. Joseph is a hero. Uh, Joseph withstands temptations down in Egypt. And Joseph is a really good model for the people who are going into the land of Canaan Moses writes this, and what he's doing is he's saying this. He says, look, if you don't care about your community, if you don't care about your people, if you don't care about being a people, well, look at what happens when you don't care about that. I'll give you a story. Moses is giving them the story of Judah, saying it becomes a mess, and God will press hard against you if you pridefully turn away from family and you don't care for them. And Treat them justly. So Joseph shines in comparison to Judah. Um, So uh, Judah has some real issues. And uh, Tamar is being left in this destitute, potentially destitute situation. And uh, so here's what she realizes. She's got to do something. So she dresses up like a prostitute. And uh, she waits in a place where she knows Judah could be found. In fact, what's really going on is Judah's going to a, a kind of a feast. And there's, it's a feast related to the shearing of sheep. And uh, he's going to somebody's place, and they're going to just party. 
And so when you look at Judah, he's, he's really, I don't, we don't know that he committed gluttony at the, at the feast, but you sense this guy is just full of different kinds of lusts, okay? And so Tamar uh, dresses up uh, in a seductive way, and uh, he, Judah, doesn't recognize her as his daughter-in-law, and, um, and he sleeps with her. Now, in, uh, she, um, she asks, well, what does, what does she get for this uh, arrangement? And uh, as strange as this is, in verse 17 of chapter 38, Judah offers her a young goat. Okay. So, uh, then, but he doesn't have the goat with him. So, she says, well, what guarantee do I have? You need to leave something with me that is important to you that you'll come back and get later and then bring the goat later. All right? So, he takes this ring around his neck. It's a necklace and a ring. And then he takes his uh, staff and he gives those things to her as a deposit that he'll come back and bring the goat. All right. So, what happens? Tamar gets pregnant. This is known in the community. It's a scandal. Uh, she doesn't have a husband. Judah is outraged. And uh, you can sense all the hypocrisy. You can sense all the trouble with this, uh, with this guy, Judah. And uh, all along, he has failed to keep his promise to her. And the outrage, the community outrage is essentially this. Look, she's supposed to wait for Shayla, right? And look what she did, right? So instead of, uh, well... She then uh, sends evidence of, well, let me tell you who the guy is who got me pregnant. It's Judah. Okay. And that tends to quiet people who accuse others, right? So he wanted her, by the way. His first response was to have her burned. Okay? So that tells us much about what we as Christians would call our flesh. When we sense disapproval of someone, right, our first response is to destroy them. Our first response is to just... I've met the scum of the world, and I want them out of my life. They look, make me look bad, and our first response is condemnation. That's called viewing someone after the flesh, okay? That means they can never change. God can't work in them, and all they need is, con- all they should get is condemnation. Now, all of this is, um, is the backstory. Tamar um, is a woman who is never told that she um, uh, is she's never condemned for some sexual sin in the Bible. She's never declared as unclean in the Bible. What happens to her is that the big sin in Genesis 38 is Judah's sin against her by not caring for her and not acting justly to her and not coming through with his promise to her. So um, that, is, uh, that is essentially to say that Tamar's story is not a side story. It's not sort of like back in the old dusty parts of the Old Testament. It's right here within a few sentences, uh, uh, just a few words of Matthew's gospel. He puts the name of Tamar right up front and center. She's not hidden, put away, sort of some sort of bad story nobody should remember. She's right there in the middle of the, of the introduction to Jesus Christ. Now, Matthew is thinking that These are the kinds of people who should be included in the genealogy of Jesus because he comes with justice for them. He remembers them. 
God descends in his son in order to def- in order to defend. It's very interesting the ministry of Jesus to those who were not powerful, to those who could not uh, speak for themselves where the religious authorities of Jesus' day were condemning sinners, Jesus was having lunch with them. He was associating with them, and he was drawing near to them. And he was not ashamed to be with them. And remember, the first key to understanding the kingdom of God comes from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Those are the ones that Jesus hung around And the righteous and the self-righteous thought it was scandalous. So um, here is one key idea behind Tamar's story, and this is it, and Judah. Unless God does a work in our hearts, we are dead to neighbor love. Unless God does a work in our hearts, we will not have a heart of justice toward those who we are called to love. We will be dead to what we owe our neighbor Now, what's very interesting is that when uh, Tamar exposes uh, his sin, and he's the author of the the child, he's the the one behind it, Um, in verse 26, Judah says something quite remarkable in Genesis 38. He says, she is more righteous than I am. Now, we don't have much more than that, but he acknowledges, first of all, there's no way around it. He is the one who got her pregnant. And now he acknowledges that in her life, she is more righteous than he is. Now, what's interesting is James, the book of James tells us that God opposes the, opposes the proud and he exalts the humble. Well, Judah stays around. Judah's tribe stays around. In fact, it becomes this royal tribe, the tribe through whom the Messiah will come. And Judah is on the path of a kind of recovery through repentance. And so what I've written out here for you is just that Judah's um, humility shapes our pursuit of justice for others. Judah's humility is the shaping power for him now to care about Tamar. And he acknowledges that she is right. She has been just. In what sense? Caring for the, for the legacy of a dead husband and concerned about her own children and her own livelihood. And uh, it's, been, it's been a good thing that she's been after and God in no way condemns her. So uh, this humility is now something for us to dwell upon. God will humble us as we become Christians. The process is a humbling process. And the process of being humbled continues throughout the Christian life. As you interact with people, um, here is something that you probably forget. Uh, This is true for me. I like the gospel. The gospel's good for me. The gospel doesn't condemn me. I am free from condemnation. Romans 8.1. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I like that news for me. Now, if you cross me or you disappoint me, the gospel's good for me, but it's too good for you. 
okay? And that's how we work. That's how it works. We have a law relationship with other people. You know that. I've said this many times from the pulpit here. And that is that when people disappoint you, it could be a spouse, could be someone at work, someone fails to meet your rules, right, your, your rules. You probably have more rules than Moses, by the way. Uh, and, and when someone fails to meet your rules, now you are free to no longer love them. Hey, it's great. And so this works. It, it, we're, we're actually quite confused in the church. This is how you deal with people. It's conditional love, right? Conditional love. And then you have to help people come roll it back, roll it back. Let's, let's come back a little bit. Let's meet at the cross and let's talk this over. In the cross, we are given power for great acts of love that stem not from condemnation, of course, not, not from anything else but humility. Our repentance flows into goodness toward others. We are awakened to other people. And I have a hard heart. I am concerned to honor myself. And I need gospel renewal continually. I honor myself. I am dysfunctional to use modern terms. In, I think I'm loving to other people, but really I have a dysfunctional love. I love based upon how others love me. <clears throat> and I am Judah-like. If others make me look bad, I, I'm looking for matches. Where, where can we get some matches? I want to get this person out of my life because they make me look, look bad. <clears throat> Now, there's a, a spirit uh, that enters into us, the Holy Spirit, and it is the same spirit that was functioning in Jesus Christ. You are in union with Jesus Christ if you are a believer in, Christ, in, in Jesus. You are in union with him, and here's how it works. That same spirit of humility is functioning in you right now, and the Spirit of God is resisting pride in you. If there's pride in your heart, know this for sure. You are experiencing God's resistance to your pride. And, and I simply want you to know that as we look at the life of Jesus, we have someone who is fully aware that others need to have something shocking. They need to have grace instead of condemnation. And you look at the ministry of Jesus, he's dispensing grace and mercy when he is the one who knows fully their violation, their sin, and has a right to condemn. But in the life of Jesus, we have one who is modeling patience, waiting for judgment day, patience, waiting for the day of justice, and even willing to suffer in order to wait for the perfect day when God the Father will set all things right. So repentance, Judah finally acknowledges you know what? My life has been a mess. My life has been a deception. My life has been a pursuit of not loving righteousness. And she, this woman, the one I wanted to burn, is more righteous than me. Repentance is lowly. Repentance is meek. Repentance is long-suffering. Repentance forbears. Repentance fights against fleshly lusts of condemnation. Repentance 
is a power to crucify the flesh. Repentance is strength. Repentance is real power, relational power. Repentance moves toward others. Repentance is good. Repentance brings about Christ-like character. Repentance is core to Advent. Repentance is central to why Christ descended, that our sense of justice would become heightened. We would care about other people corporately as a church and individually as Christians. Care about the neglected. Care about those who are overlooked. Care about those who don't even know that they are overlooked. Care about those who are going to be left behind in some way or another. Care. New, new actions of love toward other people. And let me give you one example. Uh, and this is just a this is just a freebie, and, and you can, and I, maybe there's someone out here who will say, that's me, sign me up, Pastor Todd. Here it is. We have a computer lab downstairs. Uh, if you haven't seen it, go on downstairs. 18 computer lab, uh, 18 stations there, and it is used uh, by our school. But I, I, whenever I go by the, the computer lab, and I've done this for years, and um, I confess my, in, uh, my, my lack of mo- mobility on this subject. Do you know there are dozens and dozens of single moms who uh, do not know how to use computers within 10 minutes of our church? And do you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had like a night school for them? They come in and they use these computers and we have childcare and we have a meal for them. And one of you, one of you would be the instructor. Now, and, and you could teach them how to use a computer and you'd give them a skill. You see, they are, they're not going to have the skills to be able to have a job without being able to use a computer. Now, that, the church needs to think about justice in those terms. We need to do a better job. We need you to spur the elders on. Hey, think about this. What about that? Hey, why not this? We need people with ideas. We also need people who are available and say, you know what? My life's comfortable enough. My li- I have enough stuff. I have, enough, uh, I have some free time. Think about it. Are we committing a kind of injustice as a church to have resources that we're not using? That's a freebie, by the way. That was free. Right? But I say that to say, look, some, I wouldn't want any one of you motivated by, oh, well, Pastor Todd, I, you know, and you sort of grovel and, you, and you're motivated by guilt and you sign up. And I want someone passionate to say, man, that is right. That is good. I can do that. To move in the giftedness that God has already given you. And, and, uh, and, and, and then individual acts. You see, that's the church mobilized, but you are already gifted, and you're moving about, and your, your eyes God will use, the things you see, the, the things that need to be corrected, and the people need to be brought in. You, God, can use. Um, so let me wrap up just a couple ideas here, and then we're done. Matthew loves these, uh, uh, these stories. Uh, these women are included in Matthew's genealogy, and one of the main points is that God remembers. God remembers. And there are many upon whom injustice has fallen. Uh, We're all born sinners, but sin happens to us. And uh, as Christians, uh, may we not be part of that, but but extend justice to people. There's a fake kind of hypocrisy that's going on here in the story of Tamar and Judah. And Judah is finally exposed for kind of the fraud that he is. 
but God does an inside job in the heart of Judah. I react like all of you to Judah. And so there's a message there that even the lowest of the low, there's possibility that God will work. And Judah, his name becomes quite a name in the history of Israel. But it's a humbling thing when you realize that you don't really think about others and you need to repent. So what God does in Jesus is that he, he shows us that on the cross we can find someone who's willing to come for us and to deal with our problem before a holy and just God. Jesus comes with a core issue between ourselves and God, and that is we need mercy and we need to fulfill God's law, but we can't, and so Jesus does that. Jesus comes for those who are weak before God's law. He comes before those who cannot keep God's law. He comes for those who would be terrified to receive God's justice. Jesus and Tamar are forever linked together in the gospel together. Tamar finally gets a kind of justice in her life. But this is now the beginning of something marvelous that's going to be outworked, working itself out in the life of the church through the centuries. We as a church can grow in our understanding of justice. But let's just start in the simple things like relational justice, the patience and forbearance that we need to give others. And so we are indifferent. We need to move toward, in love toward people. But it only happens when we are so secure in God's love for us. Jesus Christ descended from glory in order to defend you. You had no defense before God's law. You could not stand before a holy God. And he came to defend you with his very body. God knows every injustice in this world, and not a single bit of it will be forgotten. He knows his church when she is cold and prideful and unwilling to protect. God knows. God first spoke to Cain after he had killed his brother Abel, and he said, Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. That's the last quote visitors to the Holocaust Museum read. It's on a wall in a room intended for quiet meditation. God sends a message to Cain and to all of us that he will not stand idly by. And you, if you have been sinned against, you might get justice in this world, but you probably won't. The families of those children who died in Connecticut this week, no matter what possible justice could happen in this world with the, the perpetrator dead, the only justice that could ever come to them would be the, the return of their children so there, it is a scary thing to face this world and to realize that injustice is coming our way into the, uh, in, in, into, the, into the lives of people we love or don't even know. Injustice is part of this wretched, fallen condition that we have, we've, we've, we've fallen into. But the voice of Tamar is among us today. Tamar wanted to do what was right, and she was forgotten. 
It's an injustice. It's a cry of injustice. Injustice has a voice. It is the voice of a cry. It is the voice of the crying black church and black community who just a few years ago had no one to join them in their struggle. It is a cry that has been around since the day Cain killed his brother, and Tamar had this very same cry. It is a cry for justice. Jesus joins those who cry because no one will bring them in, no one will protect them, and treat them as a human being. But how does he join them? He's willing to enter a place where no one would ever go, where no one hears his cry. It is a place where God forsakes sinners and punishes them. Jesus Christ descended in order to defend the weak and the powerless and to go to the sinner's place. So, radical injustice happened to Jesus Christ, and God shares in the cry of the exposed, the weak, and the powerless. And God calls to them and says, I will meet with you, and I will meet with you at the foot of my son's cross. God shares in that cry of those who are exposed, and it is now no longer God looking down and telling Cain about the blood that cries out. It is, it is now God himself in human form crying himself. God in human form crying himself. Why have you forsaken me? Judah was afraid of one more death. He wasn't about to give his son, his last son. But we find out in the gospel that God is not afraid to give his son. So, in all of this extraordinary love, God exposes our cold hearts. And he says, I'm not going to give up on you. I'm willing to let you change through the power of this humbling gospel, that you would become a kind of person who protects others and moves in a less, less selfish love. So, he cries with those who experience justice. He waits with them at at his son's cross. And the day of waiting is almost over. The days of crying will cease. And God is about to wipe the tears of every eye. Judah, who made false promises, is contrasted with God, who has never failed once in any of his promises. Our God descended to defend us. Let's defend others. Let's pray. And so, God, you are the great one who has kept promises. The genealogy that we have read is really just a story of you, the promise keeper. Thank you for including the story of Tamar. Thank you for your love for a woman who would have otherwise been forgotten by her community, by the men she was trusting. Restore us, Lord, to a gospel that gives us power power to love those who've been kicked to the curb by the powerful. Thank you that your gospel is a powerful gospel that changes even the most wretched heart. And we thank you that you are at, at work in changing our wretched hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.